Lord, God, as we consider our lives, as we look back and think about our journey, we cannot help but say that you are faithful. We see how you've carried us. We see how you've sustained us. We see the ways in which you have provided for us and given us life and breath and so much to enjoy, so much to be thankful for. So, Lord, we celebrate you this morning as this good God. Long, we long today, we long today, God, to not just be able to talk about your goodness, to describe your goodness, but, Lord, truly to taste of your goodness, to actually apprehend you for our hearts to sink deeper and deeper and deeper into your hands and for you to fill us up with who you are. Lord, we ask this morning that you would meet us in this place. Use your word, use your people, use the Lord's Supper, use these songs we've, we've been singing and we're going to sing to draw us deeper into you. God, we come to you this morning on the basis of your son, Jesus Christ. We come knowing that we need grace. We need you to save us. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us now, guide us, lead us. We look to you in all things. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. And you seated. Uh, as you're taking your seats uh, this morning, I actually want to just share a br few brief comments, both uh, about the church itself, some things that are going on, but also a, a brief personal word as well uh, about what's going on in my life. Um, first of all, as far as the church is concerned, really, really excited. Tomorrow, our financial peace class is going to be kicking off. Uh, we're super excited. Yay, yay, woo, woo. And um, a lot of us, a lot of us, I, was, I, don't, I don't even know, this might be true, it, it might not be, so take it for what it's worth, but I think most of us, like, I think most of the members of this church have gone through financial peace, and uh, if you talk to anybody that's been through it, uh, it is extremely helpful, and so if you're wanting to know uh, how to just open your hands to God and see what he has to say about how to use your money and how to, how to think about stewarding the, the things that he's given us, I would highly encourage you to, to come tomorrow uh, to financial peace. Um, also, I'm super excited that for the first time in a long time, we have something that is specifically for women. We have women's ministries, things kicking off this fall. Yeah, super excited. It's going to be like a sprint, things like five or six weeks, and that starts on October uh, 4th. So if you're looking to meet other women, connect in with other women, do life with other women, uh, sign up, go on the website, sign up for that, and come out and, and jump on board for that, that sprint uh, in, in the fall uh, to connect with other women. And then the last thing, uh, I'm very excited, next summer, summer 2023, we are going to be taking a mission trip to Zambia, where we have uh, some missionaries, Ken and Karen Buckner there, who, it's their full-time ministry there in Zambia, and a team from this church is going to go to Zambia to do ministry there. And so if you're interested, if that's something that sounds exciting to you, if you're even curious, uh, next Sunday, in between the two services, there's going to be an interest meeting for that trip. And so that interest meeting will start at about 1025, and it will go for about 15, 20 minutes. So if you have any interest whatsoever at, on saying yes to go on the mission trip next week in between services, we'd love to invite you to, to check that out. Um, now, uh, on, a, on a personal note, on a personal note, um, some of you, uh, this won't be a surprise, some of you, it may. Um, 
Our, my, my name's Morgan, okay? I'm the associate pastor here. My wife's name's Allie. We have a son, Benjamin, who's three and a half. And we just had a daughter. Her name's Layton, and she's 11 weeks old. Uh, and so it's been, you know, an interesting, um, you know, few weeks for us. Um, here's the thing about Layton. Layton has had a really tough time, uh, really from the moment, from like the moment she was born. Uh, it's been kind of a, a, a rough, rough road. Um, in fact, the first two weeks, we actually thought everything was going great. You know, we brought her home and she was like sleeping really good and she was like super quiet and we thought that was great. Uh, we were sleeping, it, was, it seemed great, but we went in for the two-week checkup and what we found out is that she actually wasn't eating. She actually wasn't getting anything and that's why she was so sleepy. That's why she was so quiet. Uh, and so really the last nine weeks have been really tough and really hard. Uh, well, uh, about a week and a half ago, so not this Wednesday, but the Wednesday before, uh, I'm at home, I'm changing her diaper, and I feel kind of a bump, like, around her waist. feels odd to me, you know, I call Allie over, Allie, you know, she's like, let's go, you know, so we went, went to the ER, and uh, we found out, to make a long story short, we found out uh, that Leighton had a hernia, and that her ovary was popping out uh, of, through the hernia, so we ended up at the hospital, uh, we're at MUSC, which is good, um, and they start kind of, like, screening her and looking at other things, and what they immediately realized, which we already kind of knew this, is that Leighton was, is also really, really malnourished. Um, she's, she's not where she needs to be. She's not taking food. She's not growing. And so on Monday, uh, they did a very successful surgery. They repaired, they ended up actually repairing three hernias, uh, both an umbilical one, the one with the ovary, and they found another one. And they, they took care of all that. It's great. Everything went well. But they also decided to put in a G-tube so that she could be fed uh, through her through the tube instead of um, taking uh, milk uh, orally, and uh, it's been tough. Uh, she's uh, only going to come home if she can gain weight, and so far, so tomorrow will be a week, and so far she hasn't. She hasn't been gaining any weight, and so um, th- this is why I'm telling you this. Uh, I would really love for you guys to, to join and pray with our family. I know so many of you have. First of all, let me just say that. For those of you who have known about this, who have been both praying, reaching out, helping us in certain ways, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, but I just want to invite everybody in to pray uh, for our family. And here, here's a couple ways you can pray. One is this. The, here's the number one thing. Please pray that Leighton gains weight. That's the number one thing. If she gains weight over like a few-day period, she gets to come home. And that's what we really, really want. And so please uh, pray for her. Pray for Allie. Um, Allie is like a super mom. She loves being a mom. She's awesome at being a mom. She is not going to leave Layton's side. And what that means is that she has been in a room at MUSC for like 10 days, and she's not leaving. She doesn't want to go because she wants to be there with Layton. But um, she's, you know, as you can imagine, that's not a fun environment to be in. It's not a fun environment to, to kind of live in for a week and a half. So please pray for Allie. Um, we also have our son, Benjamin, who's three and a half. Uh, he is like stayed at a different house every night for the last 10 nights. He's just kind of going crazy, you know, going around, around, around. He's actually seems to be doing okay right now. Um, I'm trying to be home enough to kind of, you know, give him some normalcy. But just pray for him too, you know, that he would not like, uh, you know, you know, lose it, you know, during this time. Uh, and then here's how you can pray for me. I'm somebody that um, when I go through stuff, uh, I tend to close off. I tend to kind of slip into some, like, sinful self-sufficiency. And so if you've reached out, sorry, if you've reached out and I haven't gotten back to you, I'm sorry. I know I don't have to be sorry for that, okay? But I'm just saying, 
I'm sorry, um, and uh, thank you for doing that. Continue to do that. Um, and, and just pray for me that I would not be closed off, that I wouldn't just turn inward, and that I would be okay with just being a normal human who needs people and that sort of thing. Um, so here's the question. Why am I here today? <laughs> Maybe you're thinking, like, dude, what are you doing here? Um, yeah, that's my question, too. Um, here, here, here's what I'm doing here. Um, we believe at Pelham Shores that God is sovereign over, over everything. Uh, it means he's sovereign over our daughter, Leighton. He knows exactly what's going on in her body. He has, has her in his hands. Um, and here, here's the cool thing. I don't know, like 3,000 years ago or something, uh, God used some person, some man, to write Psalm 100. And uh, in his sort of design, his providence, whoever wrote Psalm 100, there were probably like a million wonderful good things that were going to come out of that one thing, Psalm 100. And there's like a million wonderful good things. Well, one of those things, one of those rockets, you know, out of Psalm 100 is that in September 2022, a couple thousand years later, I would be on the calendar to be spending the week studying Psalm 100. And it's like our family's going through this crazy thing and Psalm 100 just goes and just smashes right into our life at this particular moment. And guys, I'm telling you, the only reason I am alive, the only reason our family hasn't just totally given up yet is because of Psalm 100. And so all I'm here to do this morning is just sort of go like this and just say, hey, here's how God has kept us alive. Here's how God has given us <laughs> a sense of stability. And, and I just want to offer it to you because um, I, think, I think we all actually need this. And so um, that's, that's why I'm here. Psalm 100. Psalm 100. If you would open your Bible, we're going to read Psalm 100 together and uh, just spend a few minutes meditating on it this morning. Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Um, the first question of the famous Heidelberg Catechism opens up by asking this. It asks, what is our only comfort in life and in death? What is our only comfort in life and in death? This is an important question, and it is a question that Psalm 100 gives an answer to. The answer, as we're going to see towards the end this morning, the answer to that question in the Heidelberg Catechism, and the answer that Psalm 100 gives are the same. And so if we're going to explore uh, this idea of comfort, or excuse me, if we're going to answer this question, we have to explore the idea of comfort. Um, if I had a large amount of money stolen from my bank, 
And in sort of a, in haste, you know, I called the bank up and I said, hey guys, uh, a bunch of money's been taken out of my account. And the person on the other end of the line said, Morgan, don't worry about it. We got you. We're going to put the money back. No problem. In that moment, my anxiety would decrease. For a moment, my stress level would reside. But then what would happen is if a day went by and then two days went by and then a week went by and then a month went by and the money never came. Now, in that moment, what I would have been receiving on the other end of the phone from that person would not actually have been comfort, but instead it would have been false assurance. See, we have to make a a differentiation between true comfort and false comfort. True comfort is that which lasts. True comfort is that which doesn't all of a sudden pull the rug out so that what we thought was peace is actually just deception. Whereas false comfort maybe for a moment makes us feel a little bit better. Maybe for a moment it pacifies the problem, but then it rips out and we find out the whole time it was a false assurance. We look for comfort in all sorts of things. Um, the question, the reason the question asks, what is our only comfort in life and in death is because the pressures of life and the fear of death form a nasty cocktail. The pressures of life, the hard things we go through, and also the harsh reality that we're going to die, and we all are going to die, and we don't exactly know what happens after we die, it presses in on us, and so all of us are seeking comfort all the time. We seek comfort in our pets. Uh, We seek comfort in entertainment. We seek comfort in schedules and routines. We seek comfort in just being able to come home and sit down for an hour and watch television at the end of a hard day. We're all going about seeking something that will relieve the pressure, something that will relieve the tension, something that will soothe the reality of the pains of life and death. But unfortunately, too many of us have settled for false comforts. Too many of us have settled for false assurances, things that maybe for a moment help. But what you and I need is a comfort that can carry us both through life and through death. And what we're going to see this morning is that Psalm 100 gives us that. Psalm 100 leads us to the only comfort that is both what we need right now and what we will need for eternity. It is not offering us just one more false assurance, just one more soothing balm that then gets ripped out from underneath us. No, 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 no. Psalm 100 is going to give us something deeper, richer, fuller, something that lasts. Uh, I want you to look down for a second at your Bible if you've got it. Um, The Psalms, a lot of them have what we would call inspired superscripts. And what I mean by that is they are original to the Bible. A lot of times they don't have a verse number beside them, but they are just as much Bible as the rest of the verses. But it's a little tricky because then there's usually also a heading that the editor of your Bible puts in there. But that's just made up. Like somebody probably in the last 20 years or 15 years or something, they put a little heading. Mine says, his steadfast love endures forever. But that's not original. 
But the thing right underneath it, that is Bible. That is Scripture. And the one over Psalm 100 says, a psalm for giving thanks. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're actually going to spend most of our time talking about why we give thanks. And here's why. You and I intuitively know how to give thanks. We intuitively know how it says in verse 1 here, to make a joyful noise. We know how to sing with gladness. We know how to show appropriate celebration when celebration is due. We know that already. So we don't need a five-step explanation on how to be joyful or how to, how to celebrate or how to give thanks or how to be, sing songs of gladness. Like we don't need to be taught how to do that, at least not completely. But what do we need? We need to be taught why it is that God deserves our highest thanks. Why it is that the reality of God should draw out of us joyful sounds, singing with gladness, entering his courts and his gates with thanksgiving and praise. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to basically major this morning on verses 3 and 5 to, to drill into why it is, why it is that this is a psalm for giving thanks. And this question that we're going to be asking as we move forward will kind of frame our whole time together. What is our only comfort in life and in death. What is our only comfort in life and in death? And the first thing that Psalm 100 tells us is this, that we are his. We are his. Verse 3 begins this way. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and we are his. So when we say that we're his, when we say that we belong to God, one of the things that we mean by that is that he made us. Um, none of us has our origin, none of, us, none of us has our source in ourselves. It is actually a myth that anyone is self-made. I want you to think about your life for a second. Let's just, let's just think about this really practically. Did we decide where we were born? Did we decide what family we were born into? If after we were born, our parents had left us on a table and no one, had, no one else had come in to help or rescue us, we would not be here this morning. It is a myth that anyone is self-made. See, so many, so many of the things that you and I think we can hang our hats on, so many of the things that we think that we've done, the accomplishments that we've had in our lives, they're actually owing more to God's grace and the life circumstances that we found ourselves in than it does with just how, you know, how smart we are, how great we are. So much of what we have put our boast in is actually a gift from God. There's no such thing as being self-made. And so why is belonging to the one who made us such a good thing? Well, this is why. If he made me, then he knows what I need. If he made me, then he knows under what conditions and in what circumstances I will flourish. If he made me and I belong to him, then I have the wisdom of the one who made me 
on my side. Uh, Here's an implication. John Calvin gives us this insight in classic John Calvin fashion. For as the surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves. So the only haven of safety is to have no other will, no other wisdom, than to follow the Lord wherever He leads. Let this then be the first step. To abandon ourselves and devote the whole energy of our minds to the service of God. The reason we abandon ourselves... The reason we abandon our ideas, the reason we abandon our ways, and here I think is probably the most important thing for us to hear in this moment of time where we live, we even abandon our own desires. And why is that? Because my ideas, my ways, my even desires lead me to destruction. But when I abandon my way, my thoughts, my urges, and I surrender to the one who made me, then I open up to God's good path, his good plan. The one who made me, designed me, he knows what is best for me. So what's the first step? To abandon ourselves because he made us. Verse 3 continues, it sort of repeats, know that the Lord, he is God, it is he who made us and we are his, and then it repeats, it it wants to emphasize this, so it says, we are his people. So when it says that we are his, another thing that it means is that God defines us, that we get our identity from belonging to him. We are his people. Um, I am someone who graduated from Coastal Carolina University. That is who I am. I am someone who went to Coastal. Um, Over the years, as I've gone around and traveled maybe or shared with people where I went to school, a few years ago, when I would tell people that I went to Coastal Carolina, at best, it would be a school that they had never heard of. At worst, it would be a school that had a mascot that they did not know how to pronounce the name of. But now a national baseball championship later, and an undefeated football season later, when I tell people that I graduated from Coastal Carolina, that actually means something to people. I am defined by the fact that I belong to Coastal Carolina. It says something about who I am. And we get the definition of our lives from what or who we belong to. So that means if you went to Clemson, it means something else. And if you went to Princeton, it means something else. Or if you didn't go to college at all, it means something else. Because we find our identity, our lives are defined by the things that we belong to. And that's why the psalm is encouraging us to celebrate in the fact that we are his people. That what it means to be his is to be defined fundamentally by belonging to him. So what this means, if we belong to God, is that we are free from striving and striving and striving to prove ourselves. 
we are free from the paralysis of always feeling like we have to make exactly the right decision to justify our existence. We are free from needing to make a name for ourselves. And this is the really freeing thing. When belonging to God, being His, comes to most fundamentally define who I am, then I can embrace who God has made me to be without either rejecting where I come from or idolizing where I come from, turning life into some sort of competition. I can embrace being one of his not-so-smart children and not envy the ones who are smarter than me. I can embrace being one of his strong children, but rather than use that to prop myself up, I can use that to love and serve and lift others up. I can embrace being one of God's white or black or Latino or Asian or whatever beautiful culture, ethnicity, or background you're from without resenting where I came from or making too much and idolizing, putting it above my belonging to God. When I am fundamentally defined by belonging to God, then I can actually enjoy who God has made me to be and I can enjoy who God has made other people to be. And then verse 3 ends this way. It says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So the final thing that Psalm 100 means when it says that we are his is that God shepherds us. It's not just that he made us. It's not just that we get to claim him as our identity. But it is that by moment by moment, God cares for us. He looks after us, he nourishes us, he leads us, he is a shepherd to us. And this image of a shepherd is, I think, a perfect image. You know, shepherds do a number of different things for sheep. Uh, On the one hand, uh, shepherds make sure the sheep are fed, right? Uh, They lead the sheep to waters and they lead the sheep to pastures where the, the sheep can drink and be fed and be nourished. Um, shepherds also defend sheep, right? I don't know if you know this about sheep, but sheep are the most non-intimidating animals that have ever existed. Sheep literally have no way of protecting themselves. The best defense for sheep is to just huddle up into a big huddle and hope that you're not the one that gets snatched. The only way that sheep are protected is if a shepherd is there to defend them. And then I think Finally, uh, I'm sure there's lots of other things we could say, but what we know about shepherds is that they guide sheep. They lead them. Uh, when our family, our family went out west a few years ago, four or five years ago, and I mean, it's just a beautiful trip, an awesome place to just go see things that are so much different than here on the, on the east coast. And at one point, we, we actually went down into these crevices. That's all I know how to say is that we, just, we went down into these big cracks in the earth. But thankfully, we had this tour guide with us, you know, this young man who had He had gone through this journey a thousand times. And so as we followed him through the crevices, he knew exactly where to take us. He knew exactly where some of the dangerous spots were. He knew exactly how to get all the right pictures, you know, that would just make it look awesome and everything. 
I mean, this guy had done this so many times that he was able to lead us not just from getting to point A to point B, but from getting to point A to, and getting to point B and being taken care of along the way. Well, guys, we have a shepherd who watches over us, and he doesn't need to go down the trail a thousand times because he is everywhere, always present. There's nowhere that he's not aware of. There's nothing in you that he's not aware of. There's nothing that he doesn't know that you need. And there's, no, there's nothing that he can't provide for you. This good shepherd, he leads us. Guys, I think this has been the thing really that's been holding me up. That I actually don't have to keep my life going. That It's actually not my responsibility to ultimately look after my life that I actually don't have to have the next 10 years planned out because moment by moment I have a shepherd who's lovingly and carefully watching over my life. The question we must ask is this. How did we become the sheep of his pasture? How did we become the sheep of his pasture? See, Every single one of us, we have all rebelled against God. We've all turned away from Him. We have all, in a sense, you might say, tried to be the shepherd of our own lives. And so how is it that we who have turned away, gone our own way, followed our own desires, gone after our own ideas, how is it that we come back into the flock again, come back into the fold again? As Isaiah 53.6 says, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. How do we, who like sheep, have gone astray, come back in again? Well, the second half of Psalm 53.6 answers that question. It says, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so the only way we become his again, the only way we come back into the flock again, was for God to offer up his own son and to put our sins upon him and for him to die in our place so that we could come back into the fold again. This is why Jesus said this about himself in John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The only reason that you and I get to come back into the fold again is because Jesus, our good shepherd, has laid down his life. He took death so that we could have life. He took our sin so that we could have his righteousness. He took the wrath of God so that you and I could join in and share in his glory. The way we come back into the fold again is because our good shepherd was willing to put skin in the game. He was willing to lay down his life for his sheep. Some of you uh, may have heard the name Alan Cash. Uh, Cash was an African-American war hero who died in 2005, and he was awarded the Medal of Honor. Um, these are some of the statements that explain why Alan Cash was awarded this Medal of Honor. I just want to read this to you. It says, while on a nighttime mounted patrol near an enemy-laden village, 
The Bradley fighting vehicle, which Sergeant First Class Cash was commanding, was attacked by enemy small arms fire and an impoverished explosive device, which disabled the vehicle and engulfed it in flames. Without regard for his personal safety, Sergeant First Class Cash rushed to the back of the vehicle, reaching into the hot flames, and started pulling out his soldiers. The flames gripped his fuel-soaked uniform. Flames quickly spread all over his body. Despite the terrible pain, Sergeant First Class Cash placed the injured soldiers on the ground and returned to the burning vehicle to retrieve another burning soldier. All the while, he was still on fire. When medical evacuation helicopters began to arrive, Sergeant First Class Cash selflessly refused evacuation until all of the other wounded soldiers were evacuated first. And about three weeks later, Alwyn Cash died on November 8th, 2005. This hero proved what it looks like to lay your life down for your brothers, to be willing to sacrifice yourself for the good of someone else. Well, guys, you and I, because of our sin, we had wandered like sheep. We had strayed off. And where we find ourselves is into a burning mess of fire and flames. We're consumed with our sin. We, what we deserve is the wrath of God. But Jesus, our good shepherd, he came in after us. He took what we deserved so that we could have life. He, as the good shepherd, took what was coming for us so that we could be saved. And that is why we can say we are the sheep of his pasture because he saved us. Now, uh, maybe you're already feeling uh, the comfort of belonging to God, but I would assume that for some of us, the idea of letting go of control the idea, as John Calvin called us to, to abandon ourselves is a really scary idea. That the idea of letting go of the reins of my life, of stopping spinning all the plates and allowing someone else to take over just sounds like too much. And that's why this morning we're not going to stop just simply at we are his. We're not going to stop just simply at the fact that I'm letting go. But secondly, this morning, when we ask this question, what is our only comfort in life and in death, this is the second answer. Yes, we are his, but secondly, he is good. We are his, and he is good. Uh, verse 4 is a lot like verses 1 and 2. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Remember uh, back up in verses 1 and 2, it had said, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And again, guys, intuitively, we know what that looks like. We know what it looks like to rejoice in something, to celebrate in something, to make a joyful sound, to give thanks. We know what that looks like. But this psalm is trying to drill down into why, why, why do we give that to God? And that's why it continues in verse 5 saying, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. So after telling us that we belong to God, this psalm reminds us who it is that this God is that we belong to. 
Um, the stanza, verse 5, draws out three things in particular. The verse opens up first by saying, just generally, for the Lord is good. Uh, you know, you and I, we, we talk about things being good all the time, right? But it's usually more in kind of a flippant way. When somebody makes a good meal, you know, we say, oh, man, like that was just, that, mm, that was good. That hit the spot. Uh, or when so, we hear a good song, we hear a movie that we, you know, think that was put together really well, we say, man, like that was such a good movie. But what this psalm is teaching us is that God himself is the good of all goods. God is actually the fountain and the source of all goods. All these other things in our life that we enjoy as good, they actually find their source in him, who is the source, who is the fountain, that all the other things, they are derivative goods, but God is absolutely good. God is intrinsically good. And the reason why we should rejoice, the reason why we should give thanks is because when this good God, who is our maker, tells us what to do, and it feels contrary to what we want to do, we can know, we can know that when we submit to him, that it will actually be for our good. That when we let go of the reins, we're not letting go of the reins to a tyrant, We are letting go to the one who is the source and the fountain of all good things. When God leads me down a path that I would not have chosen for myself, I can know that if he is the fountain of good, that that path will lead me to good. But this psalm unpacks God's goodness further in verse 5. So for the Lord is good, and then it adds, his steadfast love endures forever. The one who gave his son for us, the one to whom we belong, he loves us. These three words really jump out at us, right? Steadfast means that it does not waver. Endures means that it always pushes through. And forever means that there's no end to it. So it is steadfast, it endures, and it is forever. Um, I used to be somebody who was uh, in pretty good shape, you know, um, I, you know, was athletic and, and could, you know, could hang with the, hang with the best of them. Uh, you know, things change, you know. And uh, recently I was asked to go play basketball. And uh, I, think, um, I think I was just as disappointed as the people who asked me to play were with my performance. Um, after about eight minutes of, you know, running back and forth on the court, I mean, I was toast. Um, now, for eight minutes... You know, I was killing it, right? I was doing awesome. Like, I, I felt like my old self again. But it was like, I don't know what it is about eight minutes, but eight minutes, I just collapsed. I was like, done. My body was like, nope, this is what 30 means for you. Now, here's my fear. My fear is that we are tempted to think of God's love like that. Like maybe at one point in our life, his love was surging, you know, when we were doing really well or when we were reading our Bible more or when we were sinning less. And that when we were in that moment, his love was surging with energy and endurance for us. But that as we've messed up, as we've made mistakes, as we haven't prioritized him like we know we should, that maybe his love has diminished. Maybe his love has lost steam for us. But Psalm 100 is here this morning to say his steadfast love endures forever. 
will always outpace our sin. It will always outpace our failure. It will always go deeper than whatever bottom we feel like we've, we've hit. So when we honestly, let's be honest, when we honestly ask ourselves, does he love me when I sin? Psalm 100 answers, his steadfast love endures forever. Does he love me when I fail? His steadfast love endures forever. Does he love me when I haven't prioritized him lately? His steadfast love endures forever. Will he love me tomorrow? Can I know he'll love me a week from now? Can I know he'll love me next year, even if I don't do great? His steadfast love endures forever. So this is why we surrender our lives. This is why we serve the Lord with gladness. This is why it it is the only thing that makes sense to abandon ourselves and to offer our souls to him because he loves us and he's never going to stop. And then this psalm ends with one final aspect of God's goodness saying, his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Uh, The hymn, Great is thy faithfulness, is one of my favorites. It's basically just a string of scriptures put together in a poetic form. And the first line of of that hymn says, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning in thee. So what does no shadow of turning (laughs) have to do with his faithfulness? How do those things relate? Well, I don't know if you've been outside recently and maybe you've, you know, needed some shade and, you know, you're standing out by like a pole or, or a light post or something and, you know, you've got just that slender shade from the pole, but every few seconds you kind of just have to inch it to the side, inch it to the side, you know, as the sun shifts. Or maybe, I know this happens to everybody, okay, you're like having a conversation with somebody outside and you're the one looking at the sun and you've got their head kind of using it as some sort of an umbrella, you know, and every few seconds you just kind of have to inch down a little lower, a little lower, a little lower. Why is that? Well, when the light changes, the shadows change. And what the Bible, that, that, that's from the scriptures in James. What the Bible is trying to communicate to us is there's no shifting in God. There's no changing in God. We're not going to wake up tomorrow in the shadow that was here is now here. We're not going to, in five minutes, the promise that he made here is now no longer void. We're not going to wake up here and this is where his character is, but then all of a sudden his character changes. God doesn't change. God doesn't move. God doesn't shift. And we're invited to see that the fact that he doesn't change, the fact that he doesn't shift is a proof that he will be faithful. Uh, It says in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 that God cannot lie. He can't do it. It's like impossible for God to lie because he can't shift, he can't change. And so if he's made us these precious promises, then we can know that we know that we know that we know that he'll come through for us. So he's good. His steadfast love endures forever and he's faithful. Uh, So what's there left to consider, right? We've looked at these two things. We are his, and he is good. We are his, and he is good. 
I hope this morning, if nothing else, I hope you just leave with that sort of ringing in your heart. We are his and he is good. We are his and he is good. So what is there left to consider? Well, finally, in, in conclusion today, the third thing. Uh, we are his, he is good, and everyone is invited. Everyone is invited. Uh, here's what I want you to notice. Verse 1 ends with this phrase, all the earth. And then verse 5 ends with this phrase, to all generations. So what do you have if you have all the earth to all generations? You know, as far as you can go this direction and as long as you can go that direction, what do you have? All the earth to all generations. That's, that's everybody. That's everybody. Everybody from all the earth to all generations is invited. Enter his gates. Come into his courts. Become his people. Find the joy of serving him. Know the gladness that you were made for. Come, come, come. All the earth to all generations. So everyone who has sinned so bad that they know they don't deserve to be in God's family. Psalm 100 says, you are invited to belong to him. Everybody here who thinks that you have just bombed out so bad, you've just blown up your life so bad that there's no point of return, Psalm 100 says, you are invited to belong to him. Everybody here who's Maybe your worst sin is that you actually think you're better than everybody else. Psalm 100 says, you are invited to belong to this God. Essentially, this is what it comes down to. Any of us who are honest enough, any of us who get honest enough to realize that the pressures of life, the pressures of keeping all these plates spinning, and it's just overwhelming, and who are honest enough that we cannot handle death, is invited to belong to this God and find in Him the only comfort that both carries us through life and also <laughs> carries us through death. The Heidelberg Catechism that we mentioned earlier, uh, this is how it answers the question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? It says this. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Everyone to all generations invited. 
enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. And how do you come? How do you come in? We come in through Jesus Christ. See, here's where we get it twisted. This is, this is one of the biggest mistakes that we can make, and it's the biggest mistake that people outside the church can make. We flip around the equation. We think that what Christianity is, is this. We are his because we are good. That is the lie that we believe. That we are his because we are good. We sometimes fall into believing that, and certainly people outside think that because we judge them, and we gossip about them, and we treat them in unloving ways. And so they think that what Christianity is, is we are his because we are good. But Psalm 100 blows that to smithereens, and our job as a church is to blow that to smithereens and say, no, 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 no. We are his because he is good. We are his because this good God loves sinners. We are his because we've entered in through Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners. Jesus Christ was mocked and ridiculed by the religious people because he was so close with people who were so far from God. And so our only hope is not that we are good. It's we are his because he is good. We are his because his love rescued us. We are his because his faithfulness will keep us holy and blameless to the very end. We are his and he is good. At this time, I want to invite you to take the communion elements in your seat. Uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. But as you do that, I just want to uh, say something. Um, this Lord's Supper, this communion that we're going to take, um, this is a supper, this is a command from Jesus for those who belong to Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you know, you know that you know that you know that you don't know Jesus, that you don't belong to him, that you haven't entered through and surrendered your life to the friend of sinners, I don't want you to think that, that you have to do this this morning. But here is what I do offer you. While this, this bread and this cup is for those who belong to Jesus, this morning you, you can receive the real thing. You can receive the Savior to whom this bread and this cup, this little cracker and this juice, you can receive the one to whom these things point. And in surrendering to him, in entering in through him, you will have life. For those of us who do belong to God, who are his people, who are the sheep of his pasture, this bread and this cup represent a few things. One thing they represent is how we became his. That our good shepherd, the one who said, I'm the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Our good shepherd has shed his blood, offered up his body, that we might be brought in again. Though we like sheep had gone astray, each one of us to our own way, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in this bread, in this cup, we are welcomed to remember how it is that we became his. But also as we look at this bread and as we look at this cup, 
we are reminded that in all things, in all situations, at all times, and in all places, He is good. And this is how we know He's good. This is how we know He's good in the hospital room. This is how we know He's good when we get the cancer diagnosis. This is how we know He's good when the world feels like it is literally going nuts. Because the climax of history has already happened. Right at the center of history, hanging like a beautiful ornament over all things that happened is a cross where a good God offered up His Son to save sinners and to redeem them and to promise them eternal life. And if that shining light beams over our life, then in every situation, in every place, time, moment we find ourselves in, we can honestly say, for He is good, His steadfast love endures forever, His faithfulness to all generations. So I want to invite you this morning, as we take the bread and we take the cup, to remember the Lord Jesus who gave his body for us, who gave his blood for us, that we might be his and that we might know him as this good, loving God and Savior. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, all of us are tempted at times to believe that your love diminishes, that maybe our sin has outrun your grace. So thank you for the assurance of your word. Thank you for the token of your Lord's Supper that reminds us that we have a comfort that both lasts through all of life's pressure and pain, and we have a comfort that even carries us through death. God, we want our hearts to just rest, to rest in your design for our lives, to rest that we are your people, and if we're your people, then we can just embrace being who you've made us to be. Lord, that you are this wonderful shepherd who moment by moment by moment watches over every single detail of our life and that because lodged at the center of history is the good shepherd laying down his life for us to give us eternal life, we can know that no matter where we are, no matter what we go through, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, Lord, that goodness is following us, that your mercy is following us every single day of our life. This morning together, we surrender, Lord. We abandon ourselves and entrust our souls wholly and completely to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to invite you to stand now, and we are going to enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. We know, we know how, and now we've heard why. Uh, so let's worship together.